Welcome to the Habits of Leadership podcast, brought to you by Cut Through Coaching, helping leaders and their teams to thrive, professionally and personally. Hello and welcome to episode 19 of the Habits of Leadership podcast. My name is Dan Hasler and joining me from Cut Through Coaching as ever is Mr. Tim Perkins. Good morning, Dan. How are you doing? I'm not too bad, mate. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well. Just before we go any further though, Dan, I think the last time we spoke, we talked a little bit about the Rugby World Cup and you were feeling quite confident about your English roses. Mm. Unfortunately, they wilted a little under <laughs> the footprint of the springbok. <laughs> Indeed they did. And I'm glad that, you know, it's only taken me about two, two maybe even three months to get over that. But yeah. um, you're just bringing it up and opening old wounds. So I, I appreciate that. Mm. Um, on a more serious note, I think um, given that we are, of course, an Australian um, podcast, it would be remiss of us not to mentioned some of the dramas that have been going on over the past couple of months in particular with the bushfires which of course have uh, garnered international attention and I know that um, you know whilst I actually spent most of the Christmas and New Year period over in in the UK um, it was really front of mind for pretty much everyone I spoke to um, it was in the media um, at the pro- Obviously not as much as it would have been here, but it was certainly uh, front page news. It was leading the headlines. And, um, you know, we've got a lot of people that we've worked with um, in in different uh, communities who have absolutely been affected by. And of course, um, you know, Tim, you've you've had your own experiences as well um, with, with the fires there. That's right. Yeah, my parents live in the Southern Highlands, which is where we've done work with lots of schools, in fact, as you mentioned there, Dan, and um, a lot of those communities down in the Southern Highlands were affected very badly, as were the communities on the south coast of New South Wales in particular, and then obviously in Queensland. I think there's not a state in Australia that hasn't been directly affected by what's happened with the fires. And as you said, you know, it's been front and centre, both in local and international news. And for those of us who have been in Australia for the last couple of months, it's been in our, you know, lungs as well as mm. we're very aware of what's been happening with the bushfires and that that um is something that is important for us to touch on today Absolutely. And, and as we sit here recording this we can uh, report with great glee that it's absolutely hammering it down with rain outside um and obviously we just uh, without being too cliched about it we obviously just hope that it's getting to uh, where it's needed and is helping the fireys and also of course the farmers have been doing it really tough with drought as well so it's an interesting, if and I hope not perceived as a too opportunistic or gratuitous segue, but um, today's episode is a question and answer episode where we take questions from our uh, listening community, our Habits of Leadership community. And our first question, as it happens, and we put this together you know, quite ad hocly, to be honest, but uh, the first question actually touches on the notion of resilience, um, not in, I guess, perhaps the real strong sense of community resilience or personal resilience needed to get through some of the dramas that people have been battling with over the past couple of months as we've alluded to there but more in a a workplace environment and it comes from Jane and Jane asks how do I help my staff become more resilient so that we can all reduce our stress levels and manage our lives and workloads as effectively and as happily as possible. Now, I know, Tim, that over the uh, Christmas break, you uh, 
hid away and uh, was reading feverishly um, on the topic of resilience. And I thought I'd throw this question to you just to get some of your insights in light of your current reading. Thanks, Dan. Yeah, the, I have. I've read a couple of books over the break, which might be interesting for our listeners. One of them is called Option B, and it's actually written by the CEO or COO, I think, of uh, Facebook, Sheryl Sandberg, and co-written with psychologist Adam Grant. Um, and that book is particularly related to uh, an incredible trauma and sadness that she had in her own life when her husband uh, died a couple of years ago and how she and her young children have coped with that. And so she's very interested in this concept of resilience and has done some great research for this book. The other one that I've been reading is one called The Resilience Project, which is written by Victorian um, fella Hugh van Kylenberg, who's had a lot of media attention over the last couple of years in relation to a project that he's developed, which is called The Resilience Project. So one of the things that Cheryl Sandberg and Adam Grant talk about in their book is the work of um, very prominent psychologist Martin Seligman from America. And he talks about the idea that resilience isn't a fixed trait. It's, it's very much, it's a capacity that we can develop. And I think this is really of interest to all of us because I think we're probably familiar with some people who appear to be much more naturally resilient than others. And what really interests me in relation to this is that those people who might be a little bit more... You know, the term that's used, you know, is the concept, and we've talked about this on a previous podcast, is the idea of mental toughness as opposed to mental fragility. And um, without that being a pejorative in any way, we're not suggesting that mental fragility is, is a lesser state. But some people seem to be born with more resilience than others. But the interesting news and important news for all of us is the idea that it's something that can be developed um, which is super important because we're going through times constantly where a greater degree of resilience is required. Martin Seligman talks about three things that can really get in our way in relation to um, difficult or traumatic events that occur in our lives. And that's, he refers to the three Ps. He talks about this concept of personalization. Um, that people could believe that they are at fault in relation to a certain thing um, going wrong. He talks about the second P being pervasiveness um, and that idea that it will affect all areas of our lives, that this is really catastrophic in the sense that it, it's all pervading. Uh, and the third one is permanence, this sort of belief that the aftershocks of this event will last forever. And it's very important what he suggests and what gets borne out in um, Sheryl Sandberg's book is this idea of really challenging those three Ps. And particularly, she talks about working with young kids, her own young kids, um, in relation to really looking for optimistic alternatives um, that work in parallel with the difficulties of any particular situation that occurs. So it's not about downplaying the situation, but it's about recognising that it's not somebody in particular's fault. It's that they don't need to personalise it, and that needs to be challenged in a really authentic way. Um, it is highly unlikely that it's fully pervasive; that it'll affect all areas of your life, and you need to look at the areas that aren't being affected. And then, thirdly, around this idea of permanence—that 
things will last forever. And look, we've all been through situations, you know, the, the classic one that comes to mind straight away for me is young love and this idea of, you know, somebody being completely in love with their boyfriend, girlfriend, partner, whoever, and then being dumped and feeling like this is the end of the world, there'll never be anybody else, you know, this is this will last forever and and starting to acknowledge the fact that that won't necessarily be the case in fact it almost certainly won't be the case really important here is an acknowledgement of the situation and we're going to talk in another episode about you know where where this relates to kids and anxiety and the bushfires in australia in particular but recognizing that that things are serious and significant um, but also that there are solutions and there are ways you know, we've talked about growth mindset in previous episodes of this podcast and talking about sort of an optimistic outlook um, and balancing what's happened against the other good things that are happening in our lives. And I think Dan's used the term, I think you've used the term before about this idea of not being Pollyanna about things and suggesting that everything's wonderful. Um, but Hugh van Kallenberg, in he has this acronym of GEM, G-E-M, where he talks about the need for gratitude empathy and meditation and if we focus on the gratitude aspect of this it's about really drawing out what are some of the positives in your day in your week in your life why are those things positive and how can they counterbalance the things that are real negatives so if you think about um, how that might apply in, in the workplace and you look back to those you know the three p's you know personalizing whether it's negative feedback or a, a project that doesn't quite go as much as you as well as you might have liked or or the fact that maybe you know the pervasiveness of it that you know your your poor form for want of a better word or your your lack of success in one area is going to impact every other aspect of your work and the fact that then the permanence aspect of you know feeling that this will be held against you or things will never go well for you I think leaders need to um, work with their um, their teams and their people to really hone in on those three p's and do as much work as possible to to challenge them and and i know we've got some questions coming up actually which will in some way um synergize with with these points but you know constructive feedback or negative feedback even the you know some of the the most testing feedback we give should always be about the process or about the ideas or about you know the 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 product or the work it shouldn't be personalized it shouldn't be um about the person themselves and so if leaders can be really mindful in the way that we're communicating to our people then we can at least start mitigating against the tendency for people on the receiving end of feedback to start personalizing things the pervasive um, aspects of it in the workplace you know if again if we're ensuring that we can really locate the um, feedback or locate the uh, shortfalls to the specific area so often we'll talk about feedback being really specific and again in our language making sure that we're talking about very specific issues not you know over generalizing and the idea that permanence you know as leaders how do we make sure that we don't keep going over old ground we don't keep revisiting um, issues that don't need to be revisited and I think from a leader's point of view we might not pay enough attention to this we might assume that people need to get over themselves we might assume that people just need to pull their socks up and do a do a better job and 
by recognizing that you know people are in just interesting and people will misinterpret they'll read into things they'll go you know that they, they, they'll say they understand what you mean but then they'll go and you know overthink it and come up with entirely new narratives about how unhappy you are with their work i think it's really important that leaders take a moment and reread the email they send double check the way they're planning to give um, a, a report back or, or feedback to. But in the everyday run-of-the-mill kind of things as well as a leader, how are you setting up the conditions for people to be resilient? How are you setting up um, the, you know, the expectations of, of workload? And you know, what are the expectations of people in terms of answering emails at all hours or getting reports done at to you know just unrealistic deadlines yes of course there are going to be times when we're under the pump and things just have to be pushed through and people have to pull an all-nighter and just get things done and yeah people might have to check their emails at midnight occasionally but that really can't be the norm because at the bottom line is it's really hard to be resilient if you're constantly under pressure and so I think leaders need to be really mindful of what it is they're asking people to do. And resilience essentially is, do you have the tools to handle the pressure that you're um, being put under? And as the leader, you can either help them improve their tools and their skills, or you can manage the pressure that they're under. And so if, if, if I was being asked, you know, to, to consider this, then they, they would be the two levers I'd be looking um, to pull. Yeah, and I, I agree with everything you've said there, Dan. And I think the if we go back to Jane's question here, you know, how do we reduce our stress levels and manage our lives and workloads? How do we become more resilient in order to be able to do that? Um, there is absolutely no doubt we are living in a highly stressed work environment, whether no matter what your your work environment actually is, and finding ways as a leader to help your staff manage those stress levels so that they can work at a level um, which really displays their skills and talents without putting them under so much duress that that's not able to happen. And just to finish off on this one, just going back to this concept of gratitude, there was a, a study done recently where participants spent five to ten minutes a day writing about things that went really well in their day and why they went well. And according to the results of this study, um, within three weeks, stress levels dropped, as did mental and physical health complaints of the participants. So something as simple as, as writing about the things that you're grateful for and why you're grateful for them um, can have direct health benefits, which is what we want for our colleagues and, and our staff. Um, that story of that study is actually in Sheryl Sandberg's book, Option B, which I believe we'll put in the notes of this episode and you can uh, have a read of that for yourself. We might move on to the next question. Um, and this question is for you, Dan, from a group of teachers at a rural school in Australia uh, who are currently doing the Habits of Leadership online course that we offer. Uh, and the question is, is it possible to wear a team leader hat at the same time as wearing a team member hat? particularly when considering the difficulties of small towns and friendships crossing over? Yeah, I think this is a, a great question and probably not, not exclusive to um, small schools and small towns. You know, it, to be a leader and to be part of a team, you know, it, I'm, my first question 
in response to this question is I wonder if they have to be mutually exclusive. I, you know, obviously in a sporting sense, it's quite, it's not uncommon to have player coaches. It's not uncommon. Obviously most sporting teams have captains. So people who are leading, but also integral parts of the team, I guess in a, in a, in a, organizational setting though it's slightly more nuanced in that in that there's a very clear hierarchy it's very clear um expectations certainly on paper anyway and in terms of um you know what it is that um the job description is what's less clear is what people assume of each other um, what I mean by that is, and, and I'll speak specifically to this question, you know, when you've got friendships crossing over. So let's, I, mean, I don't know if this is the case in this particular um, instance, but let's do a little hypothetical. Let's assume that Tim and I are friends. We'll assume that. And we both work for um, a, a, an organization and we both decide um, to go for a promotion. There's only one position at stake, and unfortunately for me, but very fortunately for Tim, Tim gets the promotion, and he now becomes my boss. He becomes the leader. Now, there's any number of things that could be at play here. At the very least, there will, I'm sure, be some sense of um, grief, perhaps, on my behalf, on, you know, missing out, maybe some anger, some resentment, that kind of thing, perhaps. There'll be some, perhaps, um, sense of achievement, happiness, success, but maybe also a sense of guilt, perhaps, or a sense of apprehension. How's Dan going to take this? And without thinking about those things, that will impact our interactions, our relationships. We'll say it won't. We'll say it doesn't change anything, but it will. The other assumptions that could happen is, let's say that we didn't go for a promotion together. Maybe Tim just went for it on his own. He gets it. He's now the boss or, you know, on the executive or whatever. And I think, I assume to myself that, oh, how, how good's this? Now I've got someone on the inside. At the same time, Tim's assuming, oh, Dan's sure to recognize that there are going to be certain things that I can share with him and other things that I can't, because Dan's a professional and he understands these things. Again, we make these assumptions, we don't talk about them, and this is what makes it difficult when there are these kind of crossovers that you're talking about, when not only am I um, in the small town, not only am I a teacher of year 12, but I'm also a teammate of a year 12 kid on the local rugby team, for example. Or I'm the, the school principal, but I'm also, you know, president of the cricket club. And without talking about these boundaries and what is and what isn't acceptable and what are the new norms or whatever has to happen, without that taking place, that's when we run into problems. That's when we start misinterpreting. That's when, you know, and we try and, I don't know, we try and sort of manage our way through these relationships. And, and you know what, a lot of the time we do all right and we get by, but it's when the real issue raises its head. It's when some, someone, you know, says something that really comes at us from a blind side. And that's when it becomes front of mind yet it should have been front of mind way back when. And so to answer the question, I guess, more succinctly, is it possible? Yes, but with a lot of work. And it has to be, you know, I, I use this phrase, ad nauseum. 
we have to have really adult conversations about these things. Otherwise, you end up having really difficult conversations about these things. Sim? Yeah, very interesting, Dan. And it's brought to mind all sorts of things for me here. And I appreciate the fact that I've just been promoted. So yeah. uh, I'll see you at our next staff meeting. I'll be <laughs> sitting in the big chair. Um, one thing that this reminds me of very clearly is a situation I had when I was teaching. Um, and I became very friendly with the parents of one of my students. And they came to our house, we went to their house and what it required was a great level of maturity from the young boy to have me at his house as Tim and then in the classroom as Mr Perkins. And he managed that beautifully and I'm sure lots of teachers have been in this situation, particularly in the situation that this might be, which is a small town sort of idea. Uh, as Dan made it very clear there, where the roles and responsibilities are different, it might be a community-based roles. But all I can say is that um, this particular boy managed it extremely well and he played the role that Dan and I have talked about with a lot of organisations of being his best professional self. Now, he was a kid, he was a 10-year-old kid. Um, in, a, in a work environment, you're an adult, you're mature, you're educated um, and playing that role of best professional self isn't necessarily as easy as it sounds, but it's absolutely essential. The other one about the idea of can you be the team member and the team leader simultaneously, um, just the idea that, you know, we've spoken about with lots of uh, organisations that we've worked with, that, and Simon Sinek, you know, suggests this as the idea, you know, the name of one of his books, Leaders Eat Last, we would suggest that in a school situation like this one that the principal speaks last. Um, or certainly I would suggest that. I don't want to put words in your mouth, Dan. But the idea is that if you're a leader um, and you are also sitting at the table as, as a member of a particular uh, committee, group, whatever it is, that you hold your fire for a while because nothing is going to shut down the rest of the stuff more than you giving your opinion early and loud and it would be silly of of your employees to disagree with that particularly if the psychological safety is not set up in the way that would really be conducive to that being a good relationship in the future mm. and you mentioned psychological safety there it's um i'm really pleased to say that in our next episode our guest is um psychological safety expert uh, amy edmondson and so we'll be talking a lot more about um, that, that phenomenon and i'll put in the show notes as well an article um that explores some ways of managing um the you know becoming a leader of friends um which can give you some uh, food for thought there if you find yourself in that position Sim, our next question is from Anthea, and she says that she works for a medium-sized organisation, and she asks, um, how do we harness the enthusiasm and the energy of new young recruits? And I'm assuming she's particularly referring to, you know, people fresh out of university or perhaps in the very early stages of their career. Uh, she wants to know how to harness that enthusiasm and energy that they bring in the most productive way for our organization and she says how or she asks how do we balance that against the experience that already exists in the company well this is an interesting one um because this brings up a, a few thoughts for me one is that it's uh related to perhaps the concept of the sort of millennial approach to a slight sense of 
entitlement um, and a very strong voice at the table um, right from day one, which other people might find challenging, people who've been in the organisation or the career for quite a while. Let's say that that's not the case. Let's say that this is just new recruits, as Dan suggested, fresh out of university perhaps, who are new to the career, new to the organisation. And and the question from Anthea is very simply, how do we really get the best out of these people and how do we balance that against the people who've been there for quite a while who uh, may be in some ways threatened by um, those sort of new ideas? And I think we've seen this in a lot of organisations. So... To try and truly harness what is on offer from these new recruits who have got new ideas and energy is really important. We really want to get the most out of them and let them really add value to the organisation. However, a lot of people in this situation um, might be reluctant to speak up too much in the early days because that would be what logic would dictate and probably what they've been advised, just... You know, keep your own counsel for a little while, listen, 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 learn, discover as much as you can about the organisation before you start making the suggestions of all these great ideas that you've got. And that that's prudent. That's a sensible approach for young new recruits to take. However, it could also miss out on some of the great skills, abilities, interests, understandings, ideas that these new recruits have got. So... If we go to the concept of self-determination theory that we've talked about on previous episodes of this uh, podcast, where we really explore four elements, or the way Dan and I have interpreted it is, is four elements. And one of the key ones, which we often foreground, is this concept of belonging. If someone has been through, you know, a no doubt rigorous interview process and has legitimately, you know, gained themselves a position in your organisation, whatever that organisation is, um, they are worthy of a seat at the table and it's really important that they become aware of that. I think I mentioned in a previous episode that I worked with a colleague uh, once upon a time who really didn't speak up in staff meetings for her first couple of years in this new work environment because she felt that she wasn't quite worthy enough to be able to in that early time. And I really feel strongly that we missed out on a lot of input from her during that time because she was being very circumspect and, yeah, we missed out. Whereas I think if people are made to feel that they truly belong right from the outset, then, you know, our intention would be to remove obstacles um, which would really allow and encourage them to thrive. And some of those obstacles are are really intangibles. So it's about how they're perceived um, and how they're spoken to and how they're spoken about. Um, Autonomy is a really important one here as well, the second element uh, as we describe it in self-determination theory, which is that, you know, these people are entitled to their opinions and they've got good ideas and hopefully they can share those ideas and might want to go and pursue projects of their own choosing. Uh, and I think Dan might uh, talk a little bit about the the parameters that we might put around that at some stage. The third one is the idea of mastery, the idea of really um, pursuing something to an end point where um, a real level of skill has been developed around that. And that requires that we allow people to make mistakes. That really suggests that people need to have a go at something and need to pursue it to a level that 
of growth and development, which is it's inevitable that it will require that some mistakes are, are probably made along the way. And the analogy we often use with that or I often use with that is the idea of skateboarding. In order to become really good uh, at a particular trick, then you need to have lost a lot of skin along the way. And then finally, purpose. Um, sometimes someone can come in with fresh, fantastic ideas which are really not very well thought out at all. Uh, and so part of our job as, as leaders within an organisation is perhaps to try and really bring out um, in some sort of loosely structured way what their purpose actually is. What, what is it that you're trying to achieve with this new idea? How much thought have you put into it? And how can I help you um, f- make that happen? So it's about developing a culture of saying yes – Uh, and bravely attempting new things in our environments which will probably bring out the best and really harness that enthusiasm and energy um, that Anthea asks about in her question. Yeah, I think um, the idea of enthusiasm and energy, that's a fantastic um, start point and it is usually one of the, or two of the the key things that, that new recruits should bring. I mean, if you're hiring someone and they don't, bring those two things into your organisation, your hiring process probably needs a, a, a little bit of a tune-up. The way um, I've gone about building the team here is a very simple premise, and I, I've stolen the idea from someone, and I can't remember who. So if it's you or you know who it is, please let me know because I want to be able to quote them properly. But it's a philosophy of hiring hard so that you can then manage easy. And so, you you know, in order to get a seat at the table, as Tim mentioned before, you, you have to have proved yourself for want of a better expression. But once you're at the table and you've got an idea, okay, let's hear it. Okay, talk to me about it. Okay, go do it. I don't need to second guess it. Obviously, there's a certain element of further exploration and maybe some questioning and that kind of stuff. But the, if, I'm, if I'm bringing someone into my team, I, I want them to bring their ideas. I want them to bring a fresh outlook in order to help the team to grow. Now, obviously, the team we have here is a very uh, different team compared to a lot of teams that you would have, and, and certainly in, t- in the type of work we do and also the scale at which we do that work and, and in terms of the team numbers. So there will be times when actually we don't have time for new ideas we need to actually just get better at the ideas that we currently have and that you know managing that in a way um, that people don't feel that they're being shut down managing it in a way that people it's kind of saying yeah it's a, it's a no not now as opposed to a no not ever and there's a couple of interesting ways that um, you know organizations go around about this there's a, a very very um, successful Australian company called Atlassian, which um, was written about in Dan Pink's book, Drive. And that book was written 10 years ago. And, and back then they, they were um, running innovation programs once every two, uh, once every six months, twice a year or something like that, or maybe even four times a year. And they called it a FedEx day. And the idea was that you basically deliver overnight. So you were given carte blanche to cut work on whatever you wanted um, for 24 hours. The only um, the only stipulation was at the end of those 24 hours, you have to report back to the organisation as to what it is that you've been doing and what you've come up with and share the learning. Whether it's successful or otherwise is irrelevant. It's what do you learn from it. And this idea of um, 
FedEx Day or, or Innovation Time, whatever, really speaks to the idea of autonomy. It also speaks to mastery because by channeling different ideas and challenging ourselves that we develop that, but also being able to articulate the why and the purpose in, in what we're doing. So whether it's, you know, one-off um, exercises like that, or whether it's a more of a, a, a value that your organization holds, if we bring the right people in, and then when they're in, we give them, you know, in the corporate world, they call it, talk about onboarding, you know, we onboard them in the, in the, in the best way possible, where the values are clear and the processes and, and everyone's on the same page, so to speak, then it really helps the new people feel that they have a seat at the table, to use that an analogy again. But it also helps the existing people in the organization understand that these new people are not a threat, that it's part and parcel of how we do business here. It's part and parcel of our learning process. And in the best case scenario, these your more experienced staff would be learning and teaching the new recruits in a real knowledge sharing, you know, get rid of the hierarchies and and really collaborating on on meaningful um meaningful actions and meaningful change to hopefully help your organization uh, flourish yeah and no, i agree flourish and really grow in a mutually supportive way where the experienced staff are really working alongside and being enthused by the the enthusiasm of these new recruits our final question is one that we've had multiple times or variations of this question and, and that's probably because it's, it's a very strong part of our Habits of Leadership program. So Dan, to you, how do you set up a coaching culture within a school or an organisation? I've changed my mind on this. I used to have a real long-winded answer about how to go about this and you know uh, processes you need in place and all that kind of stuff. And it was only after speaking to um, Michael Bungay-Stanya back on episode six that um, I realised that that's actually not a great way to go. In fact, how do you set up a culture, right? It's, it's inherently a flawed um, start point. We can create the conditions for cultures to develop and I think if you th just think about this, again, a hypothetical thought experiment, you know, somebody comes into your organization and says, hey, we're going to do blah, whatever it is, we're now going to do this. There's any number of reactions that are going to um, come, you know, come out in people, not least the fact of, oh, <laughs> great, another new thing. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if, you know, the best way to go about creating or helping nurture cultures is just to start doing it and not worry about any fanfare, not worry about giving it a label, but being what Michael would refer to as just being a bit more coach-like, just being a little more curious in your interactions with people, rushing to help a little bit slower, you know, and, and being genuinely interested in the learning and the development of people rather than you know, just solely focused on performance and, and outputs and, and outcomes. And my guess is, if we do that, now clearly I should probably go back one step, you know, if, if you're interested in doing this, presumably you've been doing some reading, you may have been on some courses, whatever. I mean, that's a, that 
For me, that's a given. You've done the work yourself. Maybe there's a little group of you who have got together. Maybe it has come from leadership. But I think there's actually value in, rather than just talking about it and setting it up, maybe just start doing it. And even if the boss isn't on board, you know, consider the fact that, well, you've probably got a colleague or you've got um, someone who might report to you in some capacity and employing more coach-like behaviours. And once, well, assuming you start seeing some um, traction with that, then you can start expanding and, and maybe you know sharing the book you've read with somebody else or um, inviting somebody you know to accompany you to the next professional learning that you go to on, on developing your coaching strategies and and when people feel the benefits of coaching I think that's a lot more powerful than when they're just told about the benefits of coaching and the benefits of the, you know they're told about the new thing that's going to happen I think you can mitigate against a lot of resistance. You can mitigate against a lot of uh, cynicism um, if we just start being more coach-like. It's very interesting, Dan, because it's counterintuitive to say, how, you know, how do we set up a coaching? Well, you don't. You um, create the environment in which more coach-like behaviour can occur and it's, it's a really interesting response that you've made there. Um, you mentioned the the podcast that you did with Bungay Stanley, which I really recommend to everybody because he's a very clear-thinking, clear-speaking guy. And his book, The Coaching Habit, which we'll put in the show notes, yep. is a very easy read and a really worthwhile read. So when Dan says there, you know, when you say, Dan, that you presume that people have done the work and then they can create that environment because it's not going to happen just of its own accord. You need to be somewhat informed. The other book, he's just put out a, a brand new book, which I think is just coming out right now, um, called The Advice Trap. And the subtitle of that is Be Humble, Stay Curious and Change the Way You Lead Forever. So I just wanted to make mention of the idea here that this really is about changing your habits, whether you're mm. a leader within the school or whatever position you have in your school, your environment, your workplace, whatever it is. Changing your habits and the easiest one, you know, and as, as he says in the title, it's the advice trap. Stop telling other people what to do. Stop solving other people's problems for them um, and listen. Be curious. And what you'll find, as we've found in multiple, you know, uh, situations, is the more we listen and the more we ask good questions, the more people are coming up with their own answers, which makes those responses um, far more sustainable. If I keep doing my son's shoe up for him, he's never going to learn how to do up his own shoe. And as Bungay Stanya says there, um, be humble. And, and there's, a, there's a very valuable podcast, which I think we've actually referenced before, but it's episode 363 of the podcast Coaching for Leaders. It's an interview with Ed and Peter Shine uh, about a book that they'd written of the same name, Humble Leadership, which I strongly recommend to you. All right, well, that wraps up uh, this episode of the Habits of Leadership podcast. If you found it useful, then uh, please feel free to share it widely with your net network. And also, of course, uh, don't forget to like it, subscribe to it, and leave a comment wherever you get your podcast because that helps um, other people 
to find it. If you'd like to get involved with the Habits of Leadership, either by engaging in our programs or by submitting a question to this podcast, then head over to habitsofleadership.com and click on the podcast page. Our guest on the next episode is the author of The Fearless Organization, Professor Amy Edmondson from Harvard University. And I really urge you, if you're in any form of leadership role, um, that really is a must-listen episode. But until next time, thanks for joining us, Tim. Thank you very much, Tim. And until then, take care and take it easy.